Everyone else, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2, as Hebrews is written to give encouragement to Christians under persecution, seeking to abandon Christ. The author of Hebrews urges them to consider that Jesus is greater than anything else, any alternative. This morning we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. In the animated musical Beauty and the Beast, there's a famous musical number, Be Our Guest. If you've seen it, you can't forget it. It's the, uh, the dishes, the plates, the food, the furniture, the, the clocks, everything just dancing around, singing, be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. It's exciting, it's colorful, it's fun, but the reason for the excitement of all these magical household things is that they have a purpose. And for countless years, they've been unable to do the thing that they were made to do. And at one point, Lumiere, the, the lead singer, says, Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. Which is what I imagine that if given the power to speak, most of the gadgets and tools in my garage would say the same thing. We're not being used for what we were made to do. When we are disconnected from our purpose, we feel unwhole. We feel lost, adrift. We don't know our place in the story of the world. The Bible recognizes and speaks of the purpose for which we are created and describes that purpose for us and our place in the world as dominion. Dominion as scripture describes it for us, is leading and helping all of creation become what God wants it to be. We confess that in our confession of faith this morning, that in making man and woman in his image, God gave them dominion over his creation. And I want that clear in your minds that when you hear that word dominion, and you'll certainly hear it again this morning, we're not talking about a harsh ruler or forcing others to obey you and do what you want. No, the kind of dominion that the Bible describes is more like being the lead dancer in a beautiful choreography. If all of creation, as some have described it over the centuries, is a dance of delight that honors God who created it, then we are to be the leaders of that dance. Not standing outside of it telling, it, telling others what to do, but instead right in front, showing the steps, leading and directing creation in what it was made to do. Now maybe that's too artsy and esoteric of language for you. Maybe it's right up your alley, I don't know. But what I want to do this morning is look at what this, these verses in Hebrews say about the story of our dominion. 
and to see how through Jesus, God restores us to again be the leaders of the dance, to again take our place in the world, our purpose in creation, our role as the God-glorifying head of all that he has made. And the first way we see that in these verses is that God intends our dominion. The story of the gospel doesn't begin with sin. The story of the gospel begins with creation. It doesn't begin with our rebellion. It begins with glory. We believe that now each of us is born in sin, but it was not always so. And therefore, in order to understand God's purposes for us, we we have to see what his original intent, his original design for humanity was. The author of Hebrews quotes a psalm in verse Verses six through eight, he says, it's been testified somewhere. And just hang on. If you always have a hard time finding verses in the Bible, you're in good company because the author of Hebrews can't even remember where this passage is. He just says somewhere in the Bible, it says this. So be encouraged. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The original psalm, which is Psalm 8, since the author of Hebrews doesn't know, I'll tell you. It's Psalm 8, goes on to say it this way. Picking up at the end of that passage, it says, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What the psalmist is doing is calling to mind the original creation of Adam and Eve. When God put all things under their domain in Genesis chapter one, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A few things to note just in passing In saying that God created man in the image of God, that word man is a generic word that means humanity, and then says male and female. So being in the the image of God is not unique to males. It is a male and female thing. And when they're in the image of God, that's what sets this all up. We have dominion because we are made in the image of God. An image when a king would would have a kingdom, that kingdom might be spread out over great distances. And in the eras before uh, television and photography and things like that, a king would set up images of himself throughout his domain so that his subjects would not forget who was in charge. And that's what God is doing. It uses the same language of a king setting up those images. He creates male and female. He creates Adam and Eve and then puts them in his creation as as an image of himself, as a representative, as a reminder to show his creation who he is. We are supposed to show creation what God is like. God is the ruler of all creation. But he has made people in his image to imitate him in specific ways. And one of those ways that we imitate him is through dominion, to rule over creation. That should very clearly define what we mean when we say dominion. Our dominion, our rule is a reflection, an imitation of how God rules. 
God's dominion, his ruling over creation, is to protect. It is to provide for, to nurture, to care. There's whole psalms that in beautiful poetic imagery describe God providing food for all the animals in the daytime and in the nighttime, protecting them, caring for them, nurturing them. That's part of what we were made for. To use our knowledge, our abilities, our resources to nurture, to provide for, to care for the world that God has made. That's what we're made for. That God would, through people made in his image, benevolently rule over his created world. C.S. Lewis describes this in his Chronicles of Narnia series in the second book, Prince Caspian, and if you're not familiar, the Narnia series is a, a, an extended allegory of, of God's creation and salvation through Jesus. It's a beautiful series of books. And in the second one, Prince Caspian, uh, there's this debate going on because in Narnia, the creatures speak. The animals, are uh, they speak, they have knowledge, they have understanding and memory and history. Um, but always, always, they are to remember that a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve was supposed to be king. And at one point, long after there's been any human on the throne, uh, there's, we see an argument between two of the creatures in Narnia about whether or not they should let man have control over Narnia again. And one of them, Nicobrick, a badger, argues, Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. And the, the creature he's arguing with says, so we should just give the whole kingdom over to men? And Nicobrick says, no, it was never men, man's kingdom. It always belonged to Aslan, the great lion who created it. But he created it for man to lead us. But why? Why does God intend our dominion in the world? Well, the simple answer is that's how he does things. He doesn't need us to do it. He wants us to do it. He could make rain magically appear on the ground. But instead, he creates a water cycle. He could shine light on, his, on the earth from his own hand, but instead, he creates the sun to give light. He could oversee and cultivate the land and animals directly, but he creates us. And he gives us the dignity of sharing his image and the privilege of carrying out his work on earth. That's how it was even before sin. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see the whole world was not Eden. Eden was one garden in the midst of a world that had yet to be subdued, that had yet to be cultivated. And God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it and care for it, but gave them that command we saw to fill the earth and subdue it, to bring it into the image of what God wanted it to be. Overall, this gives us incredible dignity. We are not an afterthought of creation. We are not a product of the mud. Remembering our purpose teaches us that we are important and we are special in God's eyes. But more than that, it reminds us that we are made for something bigger. We are made for more than just distraction, more than just finding ways to fill 24 hours and get through the day, more than just satisfying our own desires. We are made for something much bigger. We are made for dominion, for a loving care of transforming God's creation into what he intended it to be. 
So God intends our dominion over his creation, our loving, nurturing God, imitating leadership over the world. And you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to notice that that's not happening. And the reason is that though God intends our dominion, sin disrupts our dominion. Sin disrupts our dominion. We see in verse 8, the author of Hebrews says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Talk about an understatement. Everything is supposed to be under humanity's loving, God-imitating leadership and headship, but it sure doesn't look that way, does it? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. If we were to continue in the Genesis account, after God created man and woman in his image with dominion, It's not long after that that we see everything fall apart because dominion came with a condition. Do things God's way. Lead the world in God's way. Follow his rules. Obey the the, the rules and path that he set out. Made in his image, act in in his image. And if they did not rule things God's way, then death would enter the world. He warned them in Genesis 2. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet, as we know, Adam and Eve chose to do what God said not to do. And the order of creation unraveled. In Genesis 3, among the curses of their sin, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of you, Adam, the very ground is now cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So we see that just as man rejected God's dominion, God said, well, if that's how it's going to be, then the ground, the land, the earth that was under your dominion is going to reject your dominion, Adam. And then in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dominion is disrupted by sin, and death is introduced. And God's plan for those in his image to lovingly rule is now off track. And we're not the only ones that feel it. In Romans chapter 8, it's described this way, All creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is the Bible's explanation for why the world is the mess that it is. Not only in human society, but nature itself is in bondage. It is groaning, it is waiting for release. Because instead of the world being a God-glorifying, well-choreographed dance where all the dancers are in step with the music and with each other, instead of that, everyone is offbeat and off-rhythm, bumping into each other and not following the choreography. But at the same time, we see glimpses of the beauty that God intended, don't we? This explains why there is still beauty. There is still beauty in the world because of how God designed it. But there is also chaos and evil and brokenness in the world 
because we did not lead it God's way. Because the dominion that was intended to bring order and beauty and wholeness has been disrupted for a time. That's why I love that little word in verse 8. Yet. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That word yet tells you what? It tells you it's a matter of time. It's still going to happen. So let's not hope in vain. Let's not look forward to something that that probably isn't going to happen. What good reason do we have to say yet? Why should we believe that God's good intentions for the world are not permanently off track, not permanently disrupted? Why should we believe that it's ever going to come true? That's what we see next, that though God intends our dominion and sin disrupts our dominion, we see that Christ restores our dominion. The author of Hebrews moves from what we don't see to what we do see. Because what we do see should give us hope that though sin disrupts our dominion, God plans to restore it and to fulfill His plan. Let's look again at verse 8 and verse 9. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we do see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. The author says, look, things aren't looking good for humanity right now and for our relationship to the world and one another and our hope for being the glorious creatures we were meant to be. Our hope is is weak and dim. But we see Jesus. And what the author of Hebrews does is he rereads that psalm that he quoted earlier. He rereads Psalm 8 through that lens that Jesus was the one who was made a little lower than the angels for a time. Now what that does not mean is that he was ever anything less than God. Even in his human form, as Colossians 2 tells us, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What it does mean when it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, as we sang earlier, the the light from endless day descending. Jesus humbled himself. And God the Son, the creator and sustainer of the universe, God became human. He took on a human body. In Philippians 2, it's described this way. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is exactly what has to happen if God is going to restore dominion to humanity. Because remember what happened after Adam and Eve chose sin over God, chose their way over God's way. The penalty was death. Now, it wasn't just for Adam and Eve, but for all humanity. Adam was like the chief representative of all of his descendants, which is the entire human race. What he chose, he chose on behalf of the human race. And we experience the blessings or consequences of what our representative chooses. It's like something that happened a little over 100 years ago. A man named Armin Azadian got on a boat in Istanbul, fleeing the Armenian genocide. He was living in Turkey at the time. And he got on a boat in 1919 and went all across the ocean and landed in the U.S. and then moved his family inland to the city of Pittsburgh. 
And so all of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren were born in that country, in that land. And that's why to this day I am a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Because Armin Azadian, my great-grandfather, sailed to this country and settled in Pittsburgh. That determined where I would be born, how I would be raised, what language I would speak. With Adam and with us, it is similar. The choice he made set our path for us. And the only difference is there's no option of getting on a boat and going back. We can't go back to who Adam was before he chose sin. Once that choice was made, we were all born in his condition, Adam's condition of sin. When Adam chose rebellion, everyone who belonged to Adam, all his family after him, earned death. But the flip side is also true. When, when Jesus chose to obey God's way, all of his family after him were made right again. They received life. So God sends Jesus. That's why Jesus had to take on human form and why he had to die. Because he was going to be the new head of a new family so that everyone in Jesus likewise receives the benefit of his choice. Verse 9. The author says, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Adam chose death for everyone. Jesus underwent that death for us. Jesus steps in, becomes human and dies, not just for himself, but in the place of, as a representative of everyone in his family. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. And the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with him being humbled. It goes on, as we confessed in our confession of faith this morning, not just with his humiliation, but also with his exaltation. Again, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus didn't just die as our representative. He rose again as our representative. He ascended to heaven and he reigns as king. We do or don't at times see the world working like it should. But we see that Jesus has conquered death. And so we know that he will make the world the way God wants it to be. When we recognize and remember and testify that Jesus conquered death and is now reigning, we see that God's plan is still on track. And that means that we too and I have to confess, there is a significant mystery to this. We too will be restored to our original purpose. Jesus isn't the only one who will have dominion and reign. The Bible doesn't explain in detail what this means. But those who are in Christ will share His dominion. In 2 Timothy 2, it's said this way, If we died with Christ, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Paul also describes elsewhere how we will judge angels. We will have leadership over even angels. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. But what it is, is being restored to what God made us to be. The leaders of the dance of creation. 
And so when Hebrews 2 verse 5 says it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Yes, Jesus is the one who reigns supreme. He is the king of kings. But his people, his children, those in him and with him fulfill their purpose and have dominion and lead the dance of creation that brings glory to God. The plan that failed in Adam succeeds in Christ. And we need this. We need to remember this so that, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't yet see these things. We don't see it playing out in the world the way it should. But they are nonetheless true because God tells us they are true and God calls us to live in response to them. That's walking by faith, not sight. Faith is another way of seeing the world. Seeing it through the eyes of God's description. A world where Christ is on His throne. Where He alone has power. Where His purposes will prevail. And where the trouble and challenges we face are light and momentary. As we were singing earlier. Every year we thought was wasted. Every night we cried how long. All will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. We don't see it that way yet. But we see that Christ has conquered death. And so we know it must be true. When we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we see God's plans are being fulfilled, and we see the reason that we have to persevere in the way that is right. We see the shallowness and temporariness of the goals of this world, and we see our greater purpose, our higher calling, and our true design calling us above the circumstances of the day to what our true purpose is. And in that we find fulfillment, in that we find joy, in that we find meaning, in that we find direction. The Lord's Supper reminds us of these things, that Christ, who was humiliated and humbled, is now exalted, and we receive the benefit of what He did. Let us prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.